grade sevens and eights, you can go with Quinn, who said he will, like the Pied Piper, draw you out of the place. We're going to um, encourage if the parents are going out with the kids, just uh, hurry on back because I really want you to hear the word of God this morning. You can turn to Luke chapter 2 and verse, we're going to read just a couple of verses and then I'm going to explain to you why I believe that God um, has given me this word this morning for you. We've already sensed what I will be referring to a couple of times in, uh, in my sermon, which is that there just seems to be sometimes there's a bit of a glimpse that we get of something greater. And, um, and if I was going to give my sermon a title this morning, I think it would be just that word, greater. And every now and again, God is good and he allows us to experience and feel and see and hear uh, just what we've already had this morning, which is a sense of something greater. We feel like we're maybe grasping something. I mean, the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that we feel our way towards God. And, and so I want to pull that apart a little bit this morning, but we're going to anchor into this verse in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10 through to 11, which is a very well-known uh, Christmas verse, and it's wonderful. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy, there's that word, that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to read it again, and uh, I really want you to kind of just soak yourselves in the words as I I read it again. Uh, Just enjoy the British accent, and um, because that's what the angel would have had. Um, I'm fairly confident of that. It says that somewhere in the middle. In, in the Hebrew. Um, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Beautiful words. I love it. Fear not. Those words, fear not, tell me. You can leave the, uh, the scripture on in just a second again, Levi. Thank you. Those words, fear not, tell me that there is a way... Uh, of, of not experiencing fear in life. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But also, it tells me that there was some fear going on. And so my first point this morning is this fear not. And why were the shepherds afraid? What was it the shepherds were afraid of? And, and you'll see that as I just pull this part a little bit, that you'll see that the shepherds are actually great representatives, well, representatives even, of you and I. Because the shepherds were afraid when the light came on. If you read the scripture and the context, the angels, and I love that we've got a light there. I didn't even ask for that. Are we good, Chris? Isn't it funny how much we're in immediately in the kind of the arms of the people at the back? And we just, as preachers, we just go, help. Oh, stuff came on. There we go. I was stood over here at the time. Okay. 
The light comes on and the shepherds are afraid. I remember as a child in one of the houses that we lived in, and we lived in lots of different houses because my dad was a, a police officer, so every time he got promoted, we'd move uh, to a new home pretty much. And, and at that time, if you were in the police, they would actually give you a, a police house. You would actually be given by the police force a house to live in. And some of these houses were pretty creepy. And I remember as a young child, uh, there was one particular house that I... I didn't like the, how dark it was going up the stairs. And I remember opening the door to the... Because uh, in, in Britain, generally what would happen, you come in through your front door, and there's immediately a, a flight of steps straight up into the bedrooms. And it's a very small hallway. Literally, sometimes only four, five foot square. You just turn and you go straight up the steps out of the lounge area. And so I remember as a kid at like six or seven, I used to open the door and feel for the light switch because I didn't even want to go into the hallway because it was dark. I was pretty convinced there was stuff waiting for me, either in the little hallway or very definitely at the top of the stairs. And if not at the top of the stairs, certainly underneath my bed. You know, it was that kind of six or seven-year-old irrational fear. And so I'd go and I'd switch the light on. And I'd always, I remember, I'd always close my eyes when I did it. Now, for those of you as psychologists and counselors, you're going to think, okay, this, this guy's got issues, OCD or whatever. But I'd close my eyes and I'd switch the light on, and then I'd open my eyes, because then, because I didn't want to just even see through the crack to see that there might be something there. And so I'd switch the light on, and I'd go, and I'd run up the stairs. And, uh, but the worst thing ever is if somebody, if you were upstairs in your bedroom, and then your mom or your dad comes out and switches the light off, because that's the job of mums and dads, is constantly switching lights off after their children. That seems to be my main role at home. It's just switching lights off all the time. Um, they'd switch the lights off, and then I'd come out of my bedroom into darkness. Freak me out. Switch the light back on. Everything's good. You see, when, when you're scared of the dark, the light is good. Except these shepherds were afraid of the light, not the dark. They wanted to be in the dark, and this light turns on, and they're immediately afraid, and the angels say, fear not. See, in Revelation 21 and verse 23, it's talking about heaven, and it says this, the city of heaven has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. God, one of God's words in the Bible for himself is God is love, God is spirit, God is light. God emanates light. In him there is no darkness at all. In heaven there will be no shadows. Think about it. Because there is not one object of light. God's glory is everywhere. So God's glory at this particular point came on. The lights came on. And it was the presence of God suddenly very real to those shepherds. In a tangible way. In a way that they could not escape. It was like, even for me to say it's like a floodlight does not give it justice, I don't think. Just the light and the angelic force appears and the shepherds are afraid, not just because it's the light, but because the light has been turned on as a result of God showing up. His God's glory turning on. The presence and the glory of God exposed them. And they were afraid because there's no hiding. Not just from God, but from themselves. Suddenly they see themselves as they are, visibly and physically. But also, as you'll see if you read the Bible, when the presence of God comes around, there's this exposure that is an internal exposure as well. You cannot hide from yourself when God turns up. 
And the shepherds represent us well. Because we fear the presence of God. Why do we fear his glory? What is it about the glory of God that was, afraid, that was so fearful for the shepherds? And as you'll see in a second, fearful for us as well. Well, you need to go right back to the beginning of the Bible, to Adam and Eve. And you'll see what it was like for mankind to live in the presence of God with no fear whatsoever. It says that they walked in the light and the presence of God for thousands of years before in the Garden of Eden. They had no shame. They were not afraid of the presence of God. And then they were convinced of something. They believed a lie. They were, they were at peace. They were at ease. They were enjoying the presence of God. They were not afraid of the presence of God. And then they were convinced to believe a lie by Satan. And the lie was not surrounding the apple, or actually the Bible doesn't say it was an apple. I actually think it might have been a banana, just because I think it might, but it doesn't say they peeled it either. So who, who knows, whatever kind of fruit it was, choose a fruit. Pineapple, that would have been too much hard work. Coconut, forget that. So we'll just stick with apple. It's not, it wasn't about the fruit. That wasn't the lie, eat the fruit. The lie was, you need to be in control. You don't need to submit to anybody. You can take authority for your own life. You can be your own kings. You can do whatever you want. Who is this God? He knows that if you take the bite of this apple, you will become like him. So why don't you just be your own king? They took the bite. Adam and Eve both sinned. And immediately they became afraid. Immediately, they became aware of how incapable they were of actually doing the very thing that Satan was convincing them they could do, which is to rule their own lives. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to hide because they did not want to be found out to be incapable. They were ashamed. They knew they didn't have the skills. And can I say, friends, we have been doing exactly the same all the way through since Adam and Eve. Even if you don't believe in Adam and Eve, and even if you don't believe in the Bible, what you cannot escape is that sense of fear that we all have of being found out to be incapable of running the lives that we've been told we should be able to run. I have a picture to show you of a, uh, an old Land Rover not great. That's a 1950s Land Rover. I learned to drive in a Land Rover very similar to that. Probably a little bit older than that because it also had a crank at the front. If you don't know what a crank is, then you've, you've, I haven't got time to explain. That's code for, I don't really know how it works, but it just is the start of how you start Jeeps at that time and lots of other cars. The thing with the uh, Land Rover that I learned to drive in, I was around about 14 years old and I worked in, a, in an estate, in a kind of an old stately home estate called Living Waters, which was a, a Christian conference center. I, I, I've worked in a couple of different places, but at 14, I, uh, I, I, I was out with my friend and, and basically we, we stumbled upon this Land Rover, which was kind of the Land Rover of the estate. And so knowing that we really shouldn't be doing it, we, we kind of started to use this Land Rover. The thing with this Land Rover that we had, you couldn't actually start it either by crank or by key. The only way you could start it was by lifting up the, the, uh, the, the, the bonnet or the, what do you call it, the hood, and finding certain connection. Inside the, inside the hood, there was a, an old uh, weeder with a plastic 
uh, handle and a, and a metal kind of front, which you could then arc over two points within the car engine and basically hotwire the car while your buddy was inside, hopefully trying to turn it over. If your buddy wasn't inside, then you had to try and apply some of the accelerator inside. It was very complicated, but as a 14-year-old, lots of fun. Until you found yourself, like me, by myself on a very rainy day on a hill like this, with it pointing upwards, and it conked out. In other words, it went out. It, it, it stopped. So I got out, and uh, oh, and by one other time, I do remember it, it arcing, and, 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 I, and I elbowed the, uh, the hinge that kept the hood open, and the hinge came down and smacked me on the head. It was very Laurel and Hardy. But, um, but this one time, I was on the hill, and I was desperately trying to hot wire it and and uh, and so and it just wasn't working so I was getting in and and then it started to turn over the key and, and it started to slowly work but I started to notice that the it was actually slipping towards with every time it turned over it would slip just a little bit further I don't know why and for those of you who are mechanics in there you go this doesn't make sense it didn't make any sense to me either I just remember this thing was moving closer and closer to a bit of a ravine and ditch and I was panicking I was panicking I love this Land Rover. I eventually did get it started. But it was, it was something that I knew that I was incapable of really driving. It was not a good vehicle. It wasn't an easy vehicle. I knew if my boss found out, then I would be in trouble because I was incapable. And I didn't want to be found out because I knew I didn't have the skills nor the maturity or the experience to be able to drive this wonderful machine that I really wish I had now. I would love that thing now. It would be so cool. I was completely incapable. I didn't want to be found out because I didn't have the skills. Christmas time, at this verse that we've read, is a reminder that we don't like to be found out, that we don't like to be exposed. We don't like to be reminded. When the angel says, do not be afraid, it's a reminder to the shepherds that you are incapable. You are not in control. There is a God bigger than you. Even if you don't believe that God this morning, if you're a skeptic, there seems to be a life that is bigger than you that has far more control over you than we care to admit. And it makes us fearful. It makes us scared. Made worse when we live in a culture that is constantly telling us that you are capable. You can do it. If you do work hard, if you do this, if you do that, then you can be anything you want. And we're surrounded by this culture of you set your mind to it, you can achieve whatever. And so then when we don't, we feel even more guilty and more shameful because it feels like other people can. Makes us feel worse when we fail. We are told... And we think we will be safe if we have a good job, if we have good friends, if we have good family that loves you. We're told and we think and we believe that if we have looks or talent or money, then that's all we need in this life. The problem is, is that we all know that these things cannot keep us safe. And we fear being exposed. That there'll be a day that maybe that job is not there. That the family members might let us down or die. Or the friends might see right through us or leave. That your talents are not quite good enough. That your looks aren't quite there anymore. Because you all know gravity always wins. Amen? Gravity always wins when it comes to this and this. Eventually, you will lose. 
So if you're relying on all these things, we get fearful and we try and protect them. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be reminded that maybe, maybe we're not in control. And so when the presence of God comes into our life, we fear anything or anyone that might point out to us how weak we actually are. And so when you read the Bible, Christian friends, when you read the Bible, non-Christian friends, friends who are just thinking this through, maybe you're just here for the first time in a long time, as you read the Bible, it's uncomfortable to read because, as I've said this to you before, the Bible reads us. It exposes us. It's the presence of God in these pages, in these words, that reveal to us what's really going on, and we don't like it. And so Satan and life will do everything they possibly can and go, well, don't bother reading it. Because Christians, you read this, it changes your life. Why? Because you're exposed to the presence of God and it reveals you to yourself. And that we don't like. The presence of God comes and we're suddenly exposed to ourselves just like the shepherds were. And it makes us afraid. Church makes us reflect more serious preaching is not particular pop, particularly popular in churches these days. Mentions of sin or mentions of the cross or mentions of, of, of Jesus or anything like that. We don't like to mention it too much in church, generally speaking as a culture, because it makes us feel bad. I would actually say it exposes us to who we really are. When God's presence comes, we will be exposed. The light turns on. And we recognize that our life, just like that old Land Rover, sometimes feels like it's slipping into a ditch. And we're desperately trying hard to hide it. We are weak and we fear being found out. So the shepherds on this night were reminded, you are not in control. There is someone more powerful. There is somebody bigger. There is something that is more significant than you. There is something called God, Yahweh. He is more powerful. He is able. He is holier. He is more powerful than you are, than you could ever be. And so when that light comes on in our life, we feel exposed. But the good news is when we lose faith in ourselves and we lose faith in our family, and bear with me, we lose faith in our family and our friends and our looks and our money and our career and our talents, when we actually see that these things are not going to save us, that we're desperately trying to spin plates to keep this thing going, when we actually see that that is not going to work and we lose faith in those things, then we are ready like these shepherds to receive the good news. That's the first step of faith, friends, is losing faith in yourself. Then you put faith in Christ. See, the good news gives them reason not to be afraid. That's why the angel says, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news. There's a reason why you shouldn't be afraid, and it's the good news of great joy. Point two, good news of great joy. Stop being afraid. How? How? Believing in the good news. Look at the good news. Behold the good news of great joy. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to just look at your life and try and hide all the time like Adam and Eve. You can look at the good news and see the good news and it will bring you great joy. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what Christmas is all about. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, giving up that which He had in heaven and coming as a tiny little baby. Leaning into mankind. 
No longer just being distant and seen as judgmental. Because the Jews at that time equated the presence of God with death. And so the angels are saying, look, you don't need to be afraid because there's good news. The gospel is coming. Jesus Christ is coming. And he's going to bring grace and he's going to bring mercy and he's going to bring love. And it's God leaning in to mankind. That is what Christmas is about. See, the reason that we are afraid is because we are incapable and we're sinful. But the good news cancels the fear because it cancels out that which separates us from God. See, the good news brings man and God back together so we can reconcile back. We can be like Adam and Eve. We can walk in the garden of life in freedom and joy and grace and peace, knowing that we have relationship with God. That the light no longer fills us with fear. Light is a good thing. Light is a freedom thing. Light is pure. It brings joy. And instead of hiding in the shadows... We can enjoy the freedom of the light. That's why it's good news. Imagine, if you will, having that sense, that overriding sense of your life that everything is going to be not just okay, but great. That no matter how bad it might seem right now, you have an overwhelming sense. It's not going to be just okay that I'll get through this. That if I apply these principles that I read in a book that I found in chapter self-help section, then I can get through this. No, no, no. Something far greater than that. Something deeper than that. Something more significant than that. That's what the good news is. See, notice it says good news of great joy. Can we have that, Levi? Is it up there? Good news of great joy. Not just joy, great joy. You see, here's here's the thing. Our culture, our world, anywhere in the world, gives us joy. You don't have to believe in Jesus to enjoy life. There are people who don't believe in Jesus who are walking around really enjoying themselves. They're eating good steak. They're going to go and watch movies. They're having laughs with their friends. They're enjoying family. They're enjoying all the things that God in his grace has allowed all people to enjoy. They're enjoying that. They're still trying to hide all the stuff. They're still living in fear. But you know, there are aspects of life that are enjoyable. That's not good enough for God. Because their thought might be, well, why do I need God? Because there is greater joy to be found in the gospel. Greater joy to be found in the gospel. Let me, let me give you a, a, a description of what I mean. There are things that we've been given in life that we can enjoy. But when we do it through the gospel, when we believe in Christ, when we behold the good news, the greater joy, it takes that which God through his grace has given to all people to enjoy and amps it up to greater level. So the things that the world has taken and actually destroyed and turned to evil in some aspects, so you take money, the Bible doesn't say that we're not to, uh, that, that money is evil, it says the love of money is evil. And so something that is good has been turned to something that is bad. Whereas God says, we'll take the money and we'll make greater joy out of it. Because when you actually hold money with an open hand and you're able to live generously and you're able to look at that which God has given you and thank him for it and it doesn't terminate on you, then there is greater joy in that. You take sex, you take 
alcohol. You take food. All these things that have been turned to be evil in the world and have been turned to actually be sinful in many aspects that our culture would present. These are good things in the eyes of God that become greater joy when you believe in Jesus. So you might have a fantastic job. You might have a wonderful family. You have great friends. You have an enjoyable life. And I would say, praise Jesus, but it could be greater still through Christ who loves you, who came as a baby. Greater, better, more enjoyable. And until we fully receive and believe the good news of the gospel, we only get a sense of what is greater. J.R. Tolkien, and uh, he's going to be famous again in about a few days' time, even more famous because the movie The Hobbit's coming out on, on Wednesday at 6.30. <laughs> Maybe, I've been told. Uh, actually, I, I am going to be there, opening night, opening show, and, uh, and, but I won't be in costume. I considered it, but I am actually really looking forward to seeing who will be giggling slightly jealously under my breath. Tolkien... And, and C.S. Lewis were very good friends. And, uh, and, and uh, Tolkien went to Cambridge, and C.S. Lewis was a professor of English, and, uh, at, uh, and he was a, an artist and a poet, and, and he was at Oxford. And the, they, the two of them often came together, and they had walks around Cambridge. And apparently, I didn't actually get to do it when I was in Cambridge this year, but you can go and you can walk the same area that Tolkien and Lewis would go, and they would have lots of chats, and I'm sure they were very deep and meaningful given the type of men that they were. But C.S. Lewis at that time was not a Christian, and Tolkien was. And Tolkien was talking to Lewis constantly about Jesus and about God. And then he asked him, and, and this is paraphrased, he asked him a question that really struck a chord with Lewis. And, and Lewis would say this was the turning point for him towards Jesus. And, and this is what Tolkien said. What happens to you when you're in the presence of great art? Great music, a great story, great theater. I could add great movie and great paintings. What happens to you when you're in the presence of those things, Lewis? What happens when you're in the presence of it? What does it do to you? Now, remember, Lewis is not a Christian. And Tolkien says, how does it affect you? And they talked about this. And they came to the conclusion that all these things that we see in life give you a glimpse of something greater. That feeling that you get when you're listening to that piece of music, that, that sense of loss, being lost in the perfection of a painting, all it is is a glimpse of something greater that you sense that there is a perfection somewhere. That when we watch that movie and we maybe see the heroics or the love, that we get a sense that there's something greater, something better. We feel something. We long for it. It inspires us. It creates an appetite for more. Romans 1 verse 19, Paul says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is what Paul is saying that Tolkien paraphrased. What is it that you feel and see, Lewis? 
What is that sense of something greater, that perfection that you can't quite put your hand on, but you want more of? That sense that we had this morning when we were worshipping God, that sense of something greater, that sense of something more, that there's a perfection that is better than this life. There's something we want more than this life. What is it, Lewis? And Paul says, it's the glory of God, his invisible attributes. They sense a greater joy. For some of you this morning, you sense God. You feel Him. You hear Him. Maybe you're taking a walk and you're feeling the warm breeze and you're looking at the lake and there's that feeling of, whoa. Can I tell you that is the sense of something perfect and something greater that this world cannot give you? And His name is God. His name is Jesus. Later on, C.S. Lewis wrote this, and this is a quote. And I hope it will appear behind me. He said this, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. Isn't that interesting? That thing that gives us the sense of God, if we make that thing our focus, it will betray you. Which is in the same passage in Romans 1 where, God, where Paul says, We worship the created rather than the creator. He said they will betray us if you trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, it being God. These things are good images of what we really desire. They are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. That feeling, that glimpse of something greater, the angel said, behold, you want that? It comes through the good news. And the good news comes through Jesus Christ. And that is the message of Christmas. Because Romans said, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Friends, there is joy to be found in this world. But only the greatest joy can be found In the good news of Jesus Christ. This is not a borrowed joy that we find in something that's pointing to him. It's him himself. That anchor. That way you can suddenly feel free because it's him that took that fear and that shame and that guilt that we all struggle with. That we're slipping down the hill. That we feel frantic because we don't want to be found out. He takes all that from us and he puts it on the cross with him. And it dies with him and then gives us newness of life. And then you can enjoy this greater joy. And as we enjoy the greater joy, it gives him more glory because we keep on pointing to him. It's because of him. It's because of him. It's the message of Christmas. Jesus, a greater joy. It says in that scripture later on, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He came with mercy, not vengeance. Love, care, patience. He came on a rescue mission for each one of us to give us this greater joy. For those who believe in him. And thirdly, as we draw this to a close... Who does this come to? I bring you good news. It's for you. When he spoke to the shepherds, when the angels pointed to Jesus and and told the shepherds, they said, I bring you 
Good news. He, they personalized it to the shepherds. And then later on they said, and for all the people. But right now, shepherds, this is for you. This baby Jesus is for you. And they said later on in the passages, and there will be a sign. And you can go and see the baby for yourself. So when the shepherds departed and they walked towards Bethlehem, uh, and they found this little baby in a, in a, in a feeding trough. Is there anything more accessible than a baby? We have lots of little babies in the church right now, lots of little girls. So buckle up in like 10 or 11 years. <laughs> but there's lots of little girls. And they're so beautiful and they're so fun. And, and, but they're so accessible. Nobody looks at a baby and goes, what? Well, maybe. Depending on if they smell good or whatever. But they don't, there's nothing fearful about a baby. They, they lay there often with, the little babies lay there often with their arms wide open. Their little arms. Jesus had little arms. You need to get this image of Jesus laid there as a fully grown man in his glory. He was a baby. Doing everything babies do. Accessible to all. Accessible to you. He didn't come with a great show or pomp and ceremony. He didn't come with great wealth. He didn't come with position because those things in and of themselves would have pushed people away. He came as a baby. He didn't come with great philosophy or knowledge. In fact, the Bible says the whole story to some will seem foolishness. But to those who believe it will be life. He came as a baby. See, we live in a world that boasts great arms and power. Great pomp and ceremony and wealth. Well, there's a belief that nation's glory is found in the destruction of another. Whereas Jesus came with little arms and little legs. And it seems strange even to hear it. It seems strange me saying it. He came as an accessible baby, the strongest of all, because he came in submissive power and love and care. See, Jesus' power is founded in love and self-sacrifice. And he's the ultimate leveler because we can all come. When people say that Christianity is exclusive, all are welcome. All can come. Because we all need forgiveness. We all need freedom from our fear. We all need this burden lifted. There's a great leveler. Regardless of where you are in the world, we all need the same basic things. Only found in Jesus. You see, Jesus sets Christianity apart. I had a class the other day at KCS. I've been taking a, uh, um, I I should say, I've been teaching, not taking. That that would be fun. Although I'd love that. That would be great to be, go and sit in a class at uh, the Christian school and, and listen to some apologetics. But each week I spend an hour talking about issues that these young people are going to face in grade 12 and onwards as to some of the questions they're going to get asked about Christianity. And the question came up, well, what's so special about Christianity? Why should a Hindu, why would a Hindu or a Sikh or, or any other religion turn, why is it that we go, hey, Christianity is the way to go? That's really arrogant. Do you know the answer? is Jesus. Because every other religion requires you or me to do something in order to get something from that God. 
Therefore, the thing that we feel we have to do enslaves us. If we don't keep on doing this thing, then we're not going to get the blessing and love. And, you know, atheists are not separate from this. Atheists actually keep on serving different idols, just idols of worship, and uh, sorry, idols of money or idols of ambition or idols of sex or whatever it might be, If you or idols of academia. I mean, it's just lists and lists. We all worship something. So we have to keep on worshiping something in case that thing turns on us and kills us. We have to keep on worshipping it or it won't bless us. But Jesus, Jesus didn't need anything from us. You're going to hear a scripture later when Luke shares about Advent. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. You bring nothing, nothing to the table. There is nothing you can do to make God love you. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more than he loves you right now. He loves you. And there's freedom in that. Because that doesn't enslave you. And because he loves you, we want to worship him. It's not the other way around. We don't worship him in order to get him to love us. We worship him because he loves us. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion including atheism or being an agnostic, anything else you want to point to in the world, there is freedom found because you don't have to work hard for something that you feel if you don't work hard for it, it will eventually kill you. So it's for you. It's accessible to you. And then fourthly, on this day, it says this day you will find, this day, the message of Christmas is for you. Behold what the angels say. Behold what the angels say. That doesn't make any sense at all. The message of Christmas is if you behold what the angels say, you can be done. Oh, no, it does make sense. It's just bad grammar. That if we listen to what the angels say, we lean into the gospel, then we can be done with fear. We can be, leave fear behind. So my basic question is this morning, as we come to Christmas, and, and in a second we're going to do some more worship, we're going to have some announcements I'm going to ask Luke in a second to come, and he's going to do his Advent. And I don't know if the children are still. I've messed this up. It's good. Do we still have people to light candles? No, they're in kids' church. Okay, there's people moving around, so let's see if that happens. Let me, in conclusion, say this to you. The angels broke in. They shone the light of the glory of God into the shepherds' lives. And I'm choosing to believe that God is shining the light of the good news of the gospel this morning into our lives. And my question is, is how will you respond? How will you respond? Today, will you come? This day, it says, salvation is for you. Why would we wait? Why would we want to continue being uncertain? Why would we be full of fear? Why would we rely on our own joy when there is a greater joy available? We can come humbly and we can bow before the King Jesus. And we can say, look, I don't have to be king of myself. You can be king. You can take my business. You can take my finances. You can take my family. You can take my friends. You can take everything. And I will submit to you. And in that, find freedom. Because we're not holding on. We can just give. And as we worship and And we consider this time of Christmas. I want to encourage you to think about what the angels said. Are you beholding the gospel? Are you looking to the gospel? 
Are you seeking after the gospel? See, the shepherds had to journey. Are you journeying towards Jesus? Are you reading the word of God? Have you found freedom in that which you are worshiping? If it's not Jesus, are you finding freedom in it? Will it forgive you? Will it save you? Does it release you from fear? See, all these are the good news wrapped up in that little baby, in that little feeding trough, in that cave that they use to feed animals and keep animals. And his name is Jesus, and he is greater. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you are truly great. And Lord, I pray that as we worship, that Lord, we will be reminded once again of the behold, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that Lord, those of us who have been Christians for a long time or just a little time, that God, that we would just once again breathe and sing thanks and praise for all that you have done for us. That we would look towards you, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith. That God, that you would show us areas of our life that maybe we're holding on to too tightly. And then, Lord, we would pray and we would submit those to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work only you can do and draw men and women and children to yourself, to Jesus Christ. That, Lord, this morning that people would believe in you. They would lose faith in themselves and put their faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Is Luke, where's Luke? Luke, why don't you come and uh, share your Advent?